In this episode, we chat with Borea Shaknovich, the CEO of Airslate, a global SaaS technology company that provides no-code business process automation, e-signature, and document management solutions. He's raised over $130 million from notable firms including Morgan Stanley, General Catalyst, and Silicon Valley Bank. We talk about the near-ubiquitous use cases for the Airslate solution, Borea's journey as an entrepreneur, and the value his investors have provided. The company generates over $100 million in revenue. We hope you enjoy the show. So Borea, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's a delight to be with you. I'd like to actually start with your product. So Airslate, tell us a little bit about what it does and who it does it for. Absolutely. Airslate is a way to automate the middle office in a way that was never possible before. It combines a variety of different capabilities, which were heretofore available only in separate products and combines those using no-code RPA approach, which is unique in the industry. So use cases span from employee onboarding to customer onboarding to automating quote-to-cash systems. And the real benefit of this system is that it decreases the cost of configuration, deployment, and maintenance by a factor of magnitude. Whenever you need to deploy automation in the middle office, you usually need to involve IT, API development, you know, process configuration, these kinds of things. You no longer need to do that with Airslate because we provide you with everything you need in a single platform to do business the way that you want to do business that is not dictated by the tool itself. So we have a variety of different customers anywhere from individual business line owners, such as like registrars in universities to very large corporations like MetLife and Eversource to governments and state and local governments, as well like the LA County, uh, as well as very large federal governments like the government of Australia as well. It seems like uh, Airslate is something that could be used by a lot of different people. Uh, and, and maybe we'll make the comparison to Excel. Excel is somewhat ubiquitous. Everyone knows what Excel is and, and how they can use it. Maybe let's make that comparison. Is, can you make that comparison with Airslate? Absolutely. That's a very astute comparison. Actually, our director of solution and engineering oftentimes makes that comparison and saying that if you know how to use Excel, then you can figure out and use Airslate as well. And in a lot of ways, in the same way that Excel is a horizontal platform, which is applicable to accountants, business analysts, and to high school students, Airslate is also applicable to a variety of different professions and job titles. And you can do very similar things And there's a very astute comparison also because just like Excel, Airslate really focuses on what's important, which is the data and how the data flows between the systems of record to the recipients and the humans and back again in a way that allows you to do both computation analysis in real time on the data that's flowing through Airslate. We have quite a few investors that listen in on this podcast and you know, if someone were to hear that a product, software product is like Excel, you know, it, they might get uh, bright eyed and, uh, and bushy tailed. So how big do you feel like your market is? I mean, it's conceivable that all businesses, small, medium, large could be a user. How do you think about your market and, and who the competitors are? 
Yeah, absolutely. We provide the first of its kind automated last mile data delivery. And that market is enormous because somehow every business interacts, whether internally with their own employees or externally with their customers, and being able to do that in a way that leverages the data that you already have about that person, and also being able to use that data afterwards for analytics and to make informed decisions is important for any business in the modern age. And so I believe that Airslate is applicable from anywhere from a startup to Fortune 500 companies, and that's indicative of the kind of customers that we serve now. Mm-hmm. And just to you know, hit on one market, say uh, lawyers, for example, it's a very fragmented market. You could have you know small law firms, you have large law firms, and there's a lot of kind of data and information that gets transmitted between among you know lawyers and their clients, among lawyers themselves. How do lawyers use? You could pick another segment of the market, but I just chose that one at random. But how how would they use AirSlate? No, uh, lawyers is actually a perfect example, and lawyers use us in a variety of different ways. So law firms use us for for onboarding new customers, so signing agreements with them, redlining those agreements with them, uh, using that data to then extract and input into whatever system of record or CRM that they have, as well as for for creating contract negotiation workflows between their customers and the counterparties of their customers. Mm-hmm. And you have uh, like e-signature functionality, if, if I'm not mistaken. How do you kind of compete or do you compete directly with like a DocuSign? Yeah, absolutely. We do compete directly with DocuSign. And I think that the real difference between us and DocuSign is that we are much more focused on the actual automation piece of that whereas DocuSign is really focused on the signature piece of it. We believe that the real value is not in somebody signing the document, but in the data that goes along on that document. And really, the document is the delivery mechanism for the data that sits on top of it. It doesn't have to be a document. It could be a video, it could be a map, it could be anything else. But what's important is what's the data, where's the data coming from, how are you delivering it to the recipient or to whoever, to the human that's on the other end, and how are you getting it back and what are you doing with it, uh, with it afterwards. So our ability to include no-code sort of RPA capabilities that allow you to manipulate the data you know, pre-fill the documents, extract the data out of the documents, and then create triggers that allow you to, for example, create records in Salesforce or NetSuite or Dynamics and do OCR and, you know, do analysis using AI and machine learning. That all focuses around the value of the data that sits on top of the documents rather than just the signature piece of it, which is where DocuSign is focused. Got it. Got it. Now let's switch over to kind of your journey as an entrepreneur. You have a very interesting background. Many of those in the audience would not expect that you actually began in uh, bioinformatics and you were deep into it, even into academia. Tell us how that transition happened from, you know, being deep into a data science and then transitioning into founder and CEO. I do have a little bit of a strange journey in that I started off uh, in academia, like you said, but I was always really entrepreneurial in the sense that I always wanted to do something unique, which is one of the reasons for why I chose bioinformatics, because 
when I started in bioinformatics, bioinformatics was really brand new. It was only a couple of years old, and I was, I think, the number two class in the number one program, the first program in the country. So Boston University was the first bioinformatics program. And I was, I think, the second year of that program. I was in the second year of that PhD program. And really what that did was it com- bioinformatics is a combination of statistical analysis and biological systems. And I really like to work on the interface of things that are established because that creates new uh, opportunities for innovation. And really that's where I always thrived. And there were a lot of really interesting problems that were frankly not that difficult in the beginning. And so a couple of years later, what I realized was that besides solving problems, what I really like to do is I really like to have a lot of people benefit from the solutions of these problems. And academia and science in general is created in such a way that you know, you are a very specific expert in a very specific area and you have a very small number of people for whom that solution would be relevant or useful unless you're very lucky and, you know, you you create your own company. Out of that sort of desire to change a lot of people, a lot of people's lives, I left and started my first startup, which didn't work out, but it was basically a professional network for researchers. And I did a lot of mistakes and, you know, I built a product without understanding the market. I built a company without actually understanding the unit economics and and things like that. And so I learned a lot. And actually, that first company was the impetus for developing some of the technology that I brought to the company that that is now Airslate. And so that was the beginning of my entrepreneurial journey. One thing I always like to ask uh, entrepreneurs is, what what was the most challenging time you faced could be a a kind of a life or death in terms of the business surviving. But what was the most challenging aspect to building Airslate, knowing that it has kind of a, you know, this kind of build from one company to the next past, but what was that experience and how did you get through it? There were a lot of them. You know, I think the entrepreneurial journeys are oftentimes fraught with these valleys of death, right? And, And a lot of people sort of give up. And mine was when we first raised our first round, we raised $20 million. And at that time, we bootstrapped the company to, you know, at that time, we were doing also about $20 million in ARR. And $20 million to me was a lot more money than I've spent during the last five years of the company. And I'm like, wow, that's a lot. And so I started investing very heavily in new product development and in growth and things like that. And we overinvested and we overstretched ourselves and we were a couple of months away from bankruptcy at some point. And that was a very difficult time because, you know, I learned how to manage the business to budget. And I think that that's something that I didn't have to do before that because the business was growing and it was very predictable and we only invested what we had, but we didn't invest any money that we didn't have before because we bootstrapped up until that point. And so, yeah, so I, I learned the hard lesson of uh, the fact that things don't work out as the Excel spreadsheets tell you that they're going to work out and that you should uh, always do check-ins intermittently to figure out whether you're on the right path and then manage to that not to the plan, but to the reality as you see it then. Did those investments in product and growth, did they eventually pan out or 
So it was more of a timing they situation. Did. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just that I think just like with anything, there's a lot of exuberance and in markets, there's a lot of exuberance. And oftentimes the truth comes later than what you understand the truth to be. And so those investments were certain, they, they did actually work out at the end. But for a while, it was, those were very dark times because on one side, there are the financial investors, which were like, what the hell are you doing? You know, you're burning cash and you're not showing any you know, results out of that. And that, that went on for a couple of quarters. And on the other side, there was this you know, a city on top of the hill that we were driving towards and that we were investing to actually get to because we thought that the future was there. And so on one hand, you had to stay the course. I, I had to stay the course and make sure that our investors and all the stakeholders were confident in the future. And on the other hand, we had to make sure that we actually managed to our potential and to our capabilities and the resources that we had at that point. It, it sounds like you've, you've been successful both as a very capital efficient entrepreneur, maybe even bootstrapping for some time, as well as one that knows how to you know, manage investors' capital. Which do you prefer? Do you prefer bootstrapping or do you prefer dealing with investors day in, day out? I will tell you that after that little you know, incident that was the precipice of death for us, we have not spent a single dollar after that that we didn't earn ourselves. And so we built a company that is now north of $100 million in ARR, significantly north of $100 million in ARR. And to get here, we burned less than $20 million. And we continue to do that. And I think next year will probably be you know, north of $200 million. And to get there, we probably would have not burned up anything at all because next year we're going to be profitable. That's fantastic. Yes, I, I did notice on your cap table that you have taken a mix of equity and, and debt, seemingly. And most people like debt because it's uh, a way to minimize dilution. And, and it's so, all on our balance sheet to this day. Yeah. And, and so that's fantastic. Not as common, I should say, among startups or growth phase companies to have a good balance, I think, between the types of capital. Is that more kind of your personal philosophy now having had the experiences you've had? You know, I think that investors give you a great partnership and a great perspective that is broader than you otherwise would not have. And I'm very thankful for the counsel of all of my investors. But you know, I think at the end of the day, what we're building, we're building for the next 10 years. And, you know, I am very much of a long-term thinker and planner, and I want to build a company that is sustainable and that is that can withstand all sorts of different market, you know, perturbations, right? And I think that in order to do that, you have to manage it as a business in the sense that, you know, there are certain things that are working on a small scale, and then you scale them in order for them to work on larger scale. But in our business, that is very long tail with a very large market cap, with a very large market, total addressable market, 
the patience actually gets rewarded. And there are some businesses which are not like that. You know, there are businesses where winner takes all, you know, social networks and other things like that, that have network effects that are growing very fast or where the TAM may be not as large and where it's not as long tail. And in those cases, different strategies would apply. But in our particular case, and in a lot of cases, I think, Oftentimes, people go out earlier than product is ready, earlier than teams are ready, and they get themselves into trouble, you know, later on, right? Because then they have to go back and fix those mistakes, which is not always possible. A mm-hmm. couple things. Uh, in order to be I kind of, I think, where you are, how you're operating efficiently, I imagine you have a very good sales function. And I imagine that you probably are fairly global. You kind of are able to recruit talent from various parts of the world. Am I correct on those fronts? Yeah, absolutely. We, we have a large presence in the United States, all over in, in Boston and San Francisco and Mississippi. We also have offices in Europe and uh, the Philippines. We're opening up new offices in Poland and Ireland. So we're a very global distributed company. Got it. And the sales function piece, is that primarily in, in Boston? So we are very much of a marketing-driven company, mm-hmm. inbound marketing-driven company. And so I would say 80 to 90% of our business is actually self-service. And then another 10 to 15% of the sales function is actually primarily in San Francisco. Got it. Okay. And then one more point on the uh, investor stamp front. Can you tell us a little bit about the value? You've, you've alluded to some of the value in giving you a broader perspective. Any other kind of insights on the value investors have brought besides financial capital? I think that investors give you a really great sort of insight into how other companies do things that you're also trying to do. Mm -hmm. And while these things are very rarely directly transferable from company to company, that insight has really pushed us to take different risks than we otherwise would have had that we would have taken if we didn't have the counsel of the partners and investors that we have. Mm -hmm. Got it. And I'm eyeing the clock. We're going to run up on time pretty soon. I have two questions I like to end the conversation with. One is who you think is one of the best CEOs of the modern era? I'm sorry, this is going to sound really cliche, but I'm a big fan of Jeff Bezos. So I think that he is by far the best CEO of the modern era. Mm -hmm. Got it. And then uh, last question, is there a book that you've read that has had a profound impact on you? Maybe even, you know, change the way you, you think about something or how you approach life? I think recently that was Sapiens by Harari. I think that's an excellent book that underlines the role of technology in the evolution of the human society. And, you know, I I have a big, deep interest in economics. And I think there's a lot of that interface between society, humanity, and economics and technology. And I've thought about a lot of the things that he writes about, and he just does it in a way which is so clear and so concise and so insightful. It's really an amazing book. Excellent. Well, Boria, thanks uh, so much for taking the time. I know our audience will find this very insightful. Thank you. 